This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 61 of Inside COVID-19. I think it's our best one yet. In this episode, we hear first from independent economic and political analyst, the UCT professor Richard Calland, on how well the South African government has handled the pandemic thus far. And then we have highlights from two powerful but very sobering interviews that explore conditions on the Western Cape's front line. First, with Dr. Ross Hofmeyer from Grotteskir Hospital, who takes us into his exhausting world. And then neurosurgeon Professor Ian Flock of Tigerberg Hospital, who explains why the liquor ban is being cheered by health workers, but increased capacity in taxis, not so much. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's coronavirus infections and mortalities continue to grow strongly with Gauteng taking over from the Western Cape as the new hotspot. Half of the 174 deaths reported nationally on Tuesday were in Gauteng. This was the second highest day of mortalities and pushed the total South African deaths to over 4,350. Although there are now also a significant number of recoveries every day, the country's net active cases continue to grow by more than 2,000 daily, with South Africa's active infections of 147,000, the fifth highest in the world. Around half the country's active cases are now in Gauteng, which is treating four times as many patients as the Western Cape's 18,500. Globally, there are more than 5 million active cases, over a third of which are in the United States, while Brazil, at about 20%, is the second hardest hit country on earth. On Tuesday, Brazil's daily mortalities were a quarter of the global total of 5,414, with the U.S. next at 935, followed by India at 588 and Mexico 485. South Africa is in the next group of countries, bracketed along with Iran, Russia, Peru and Colombia, all of which recorded deaths in the 170s on Tuesday. Some good news on the treatment front from the United States, where a COVID-19 clinical trial involving 30,000 patients is about to begin. Here's Mark Stewart from our partners at the Wall Street Journal. The drug maker Moderna is reporting progress in a potential coronavirus vaccine. It's now moving forward with a clinical trial involving 30,000 adults later this month. The newly published results of Moderna's study with only 45 people showed no serious safety risks, yet some people reported fatigue, headaches and chills. Moderna's is one of a series of vaccines that are being tested. Health experts say it will likely take many months or even years to develop multiple vaccines to help control the coronavirus pandemic. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
Richard Calland is well known in South Africa for the author of three books. He's an associate professor at UCT and also runs the Paternoster Group, which advises some big corporations on exactly what's going on in our country. And no doubt, Richard, you've been following everything closely over the past four months. The hot debate, I guess, right now is did the lockdown actually work or did it have to go for as long as it has? So, of course, we're answering that question or attempting to answer that, at least with uh, the partial benefit of hindsight. In due course, with even more hindsight, we'll probably get a clearer picture. Right now, I think on a balance, I think the government's decision was still the right one, bearing in mind their own strategic priority, which was to save lives. And they've been very clear about that throughout, that their concern was that without time on their hands, without the opportunity to build up the capability of the healthcare system, the chances were that this virus, and we're talking now back in March, where what one was seeing around the world was this thing running rampant, raging through countries, causing mayhem in G20 countries like Italy. So you can well imagine how the South African government was very fearful of what would happen, particularly in in townships if there was no capability to absorb the surge when it came. The strategy, therefore, was to delay, not contain, not try and avoid, but simply to delay the surge and to give themselves time to build that capability up. Did they use that time wisely? Is the question, of course, that rightly is being put now. And it's clear that in some parts of the country, such as the Eastern Cape, maybe no amount of time would have been sufficient to build up the capability. That what we're seeing now, is the impact of 20 and more years of neglect or failure to build up public services. And what we're seeing, therefore, is a very sharp searchlight being put on the inequalities that exist, structural inequalities in South Africa, between the private healthcare system and the public sector. Yeah, and the economic damage that has been wrought brings another line into the whole, or another avenue of inquiry into the whole debate. So governments throughout the world, of course, as you well know, Alec, have grappled with this really exquisitely difficult conundrum of how to find the right balance between, uh, to put it simply, lives on the one hand and livelihoods on the other. And it is an extremely difficult balance to be found. With hindsight now, one might say or begin to start to say that perhaps the lockdown was too hard for too long, that maybe it could have been eased a little bit earlier before the full negative impact on businesses had been felt. Clearly, a lot of South African businesses weren't able to cope with that amount of period, that long period without doing business. And certainly for individuals, South Africa, it's well known, does not have a saving culture, partly because people don't have the income to be able to save. And so people don't have savings to pull, to draw on at a time of crisis such as this. So what it's done, therefore, is drive a lot more people into poverty. It's driven a lot of businesses out of business. And the impact is very severe. But on the other hand, I think it's also very clear that a lot more lives would have been lost had there been no lockdown. And what we're seeing now is the effect of COVID as it runs rampant through very congested uh, working class areas. The other hot topic for South Africans is the tobacco and liquor trades are being driven underground. There can be very little doubt about that. So on the one hand, the country's losing taxes, but on the other hand, by banning the sale of liquor and tobacco, we do know that people are still getting their hands on the product, but at inflated prices. 
Has there been a misstep there? Well, so far, the government has had, by its standard, a rare winning streak in the courts in the sense that it's been able to defend its position legally, at least, at least. That doesn't mean that these were the right policy decisions. It doesn't mean that they necessarily passed the sort of common sense test that most people would apply. And often the regulations have appeared either contradictory or inconsistent or just downright unreasonable from a sort of common sense point of view. I certainly think that the cigarette ban is much harder to explain or justify, despite the victory of the government in court on that, than the alcohol ban. It's obvious that alcohol is a, causes a great deal of harm to life in South Africa. But the governance and legal problem, Alec, is this, that you're not allowed or you shouldn't be making normal policy through the back door of the Disaster Management Act. The Disaster Management Act merely gives government authority to pass regulations that have one specific objective, which is coping with the pandemic. Your view on the two paths back to economic health, uh, the one given by the ANC and somewhat different one by the Business for South Africa group? Yes, this is going to be highly and interestingly contested over the coming months. Whenever there's a major social crisis, such as a pandemic or war, in a sense, the peace that follows the war is even more important and will also be even more contested because people will see it as an opportunity to rebuild and to build something very new and very different. What we're seeing now is the opening uh, salvos in that contestation. We're seeing different positions being put forward. I don't think they're a million miles apart. I think there will be lots of debate, as there should be. What I hope is that South Africa will arrive at a consensus that is cross-sectoral, government, business, unions largely behind it, and that they can identify the big strategic levers that can be pulled, which will not only get the economy moving again in the short term and get people back to work, but which will also give effect to the structural changes in the economy, which I think have held South Africa back for so long. And those structural changes, by the way, I think span the whole ideological spectrum. So on the one hand, you want to get government out of the energy sector. You want private investment into the energy sector so that we can have a green revolution and we can do the things that the president promised in his State of the Nation address in February, but which for inexplicable reasons have not been delivered. Uh, and Minister Mantash is a major obstacle there. That has to get moving. On the other hand, you want very much social democrat policies such as a basic income grant. I think a basic income grant would be a game changer. And there have been moves in the last few days to suggest that that might now become a reality, notwithstanding the very harsh fiscal circumstances that South Africa finds itself in. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Dr. Ross Hoffmeyer is back with us after a three-month sojourn. He is an associate professor at UCT Department of Anesthesia, works at the Grotteskir Hospital, and has had, well, a very interesting three months, Ross. When we spoke in April, you were preparing. That preparation presumably stood you in very good stead in recent times. Oh, thanks, Alec. Yeah, it feels like it's been a lot longer than three months, and it's certainly been a very busy time. I think the preparations that we had been making when we last spoke, as you say, have stood us in good stead. We've definitely learned lessons along the way. We had the somewhat dubious privilege, of course, of being able to learn from those who had gone before us, particularly overseas. And hopefully we in the Western Cape and here at Kruiski are able to hand on some of the lessons that we've learned to other hospitals around the country. 
Are you past the worst? I'm tempted to say uh, conservatively and cautiously that we think we are seeing light at the end of the tunnel. There has been a slight slackening in cases and an easing in the number of, of cases we're seeing each day. We have recently been able to actually decrease the number of extra ICU beds that we are staffing. As of this week, we've actually decreased one unit, whereas there was a stage where we were opening up a new ICU unit just about every week. So while we think we may have gone over a peak, this is only really within the last week or so, and, and we're looking very, very carefully at the numbers to make sure this is not just a temporary blip and things get worse again. But with the eye of faith and a bit of hope, uh, we think that we might be over the peak and we might be seeing a, a slow, gradual decline from here. The big concern, if I recall, was that you were worried you'd have to turn people away from the hospital. Has that been the case? No, I don't think any patient has been turned away from Hurisgir. What did happen at a very opportune time was the opening of the of the Hospital of Hope at the uh, CTICC, at the International Conference Center, which allowed us to send patients who just needed supportive care or who you know were, had mild illness but couldn't isolate at home. It allowed us to decant a lot of those patients to Hospital of Hope and keep our beds at Hurisgir, our numbers under control. So while we did escalate, obviously, to quite a number of COVID wards, I don't think that any patient has ever been turned away from the hospital. What about the medical staff? Have you had casualties of people getting sick or maybe dying? Yeah, so our, our staff complement of Kruderskia is about 4,500 people. And the last tally that I saw, we've had about 450 healthcare worker infections and we've had three deaths. In fact, one of our first COVID deaths was one of our very own porters. I was involved in his care and, and that was obviously, you know, it hits very hard. We have had a hospital-wide infection control campaign to try and limit healthcare work infections. And I must say, again, I take my hat off to our hospital management who have fought very, very hard to make sure that we have adequate quantities of PPE and hand disinfectant and campaigning to train the staff and to limit those healthcare work infections. It's a matter of quite a lot of pride that we've managed to avoid any staff infections on our COVID anesthesia team. And I don't think we've had any of our ICU doctors who've been, in fact, giving their care. Obviously, a lot of our infections have been amongst the nursing staff. And that's because, our, you know, our nurses really are our absolute boots on the ground, frontline workers in terms of providing the day-to-day -day care. I think people forget what a physical discipline or career nursing really is, you know, working with patients, helping wash patients, moving patients, lifting patients. So I think we can be quite proud of limiting the, the healthcare worker infections, but we have to take cognizance of the healthcare workers who've actually given their lives in service of, of COVID patients. What is our survival rate in South Africa? Better than elsewhere in the world? I think that data is very difficult to call at this stage. And the outcome data of ICU is, is such a challenge because, you know, the patients often end up staying in ICU for quite a long time. And frequently they suffer other complications as part of being so acutely ill and, and in ICU. The other problem with calling the, the outcome data too early is that a large proportion of the patients we're treating are still in ICU, so we don't know what the eventual outcome is going to be. I think our mortality for patients who are, are intubated and land up on a ventilator is going to be similar to that overseas, probably going to be in the region of between about, uh, sorry, survival between about 15 and 25%. So it's, it's a very, very serious and a disease with high mortality. What one must understand, taking those numbers into account, you know, that's the, the absolute 
last layer of patients who are so severely ill that they land up on a ventilator. And certainly the international experience and our own experience here in the Western Cape and within Kruduskia is that we do everything we can to stave off having to put someone on a ventilator. One of the great big breakthroughs in the management of COVID-19 has been the use of high-flow nasal oxygen therapy. And a lot of patients, as their respiratory disease progresses and they're struggling to breathe, we first put them onto uh, special machines which give warm to humidified oxygen at very high flow rates, up to 60 or 70 liters a minute via nasal cannulae. We allow them to do what we call awake proning, which is where they lie on their side, they lie on their belly, and they move around from time to time. That helps improve the relationship between oxygenation, the ventilation and blood flow through the lungs. And the good news is a lot of patients who, are, who go on to hypno actually then do very well and don't need to be intubated. We see some vital signs that historically would have would have terrified us, patients whose oxygen saturations are sometimes in the in the 60s and 70s, where normal oxygen saturation is somewhere between about 95 and 100. You know, these, these are people looking as if they're on the summit ridge of Everest, but we hold in there and they actually cope. And they, the survival of patients going on to high-flow nasal oxygen has been much, much better. It's a difficult message because, you know, we still get patients coming in who are terrified of being intubated because they hear if you get intubated and you get onto a ventilator, the, the outcome is very likely to be poor. We still need to try and, and rescue the people who are failing on high flow cannulae, but we are certainly saving a lot of lives by, uh, by using that therapy. So that's been one of the big breakthroughs. And that lesson has been shared very widely through the, the medical fraternity. And then I'm sure recently you've also seen stuff about the use of, of steroids or dexamethasone trials now having shown that that uh, therapy definitely helps patients who are requiring extra oxygenation or ventilation. So, you know, a number of these incremental gains, we are definitely in a much better position now treating COVID-19 than we were three months ago. And certainly, you know, medicine has progressed rapidly since the beginning of the outbreak. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Professor Ian Flock gave us time on the 9th of May. Professor, I remember at that stage you were saying we're now as ready as we're going to be given the lockdown that had gone up to that point and that the country needed to move on and you could handle what was going to be thrown at you. There must have been times that you felt there at Tigerberg Hospital that the wave might be a little too high to handle. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. It's an interesting thing. Everybody's been predictive models about what's going to happen and who's going to die and who's going to make it and what the volumes are going to be. I wouldn't say we were all surprised. I mean, you can only prepare up to a certain point, but I think the collective effort within at least Tigerberg Hospital and surrounds were actually excellent, as good as it can be. We can never say we have enough resources. We hardly ever do because of the sheer volume of patients we have. But with what we had, we've actually managed very effective patient streams and we've got effective testing happening, identification of patients to the extent that our fatality rate is actually much less than is reported in some of the first world countries. The explanation for that, I'm not exactly sure, but we dealt and are dealing with it head on. And I'd like to think we're plateauing at the moment a little bit a little bit early to say but it seems like the wave is on us but it's not increasing at least when it was increasing or when that increase occurs how difficult is it to keep morale up because i guess at some point you must think when is it ever going to end I think some of the biggest challenges were the patients that did not have COVID. Remember, we're still serving a massive population that's got inherent disease, there's cancer, there's trauma of violence, which is a co-epidemic or pandemic in South Africa that we still had to deal with. So now we've got a lot of resources and gear towards COVID and managing that and keeping everybody safe. 
But in the meantime, these continuous, let's call it waves as well, of other patients are arriving. And what we did a lot is learn on the spot. We had these, like I mentioned, patient streams of there's a COVID-positive patient who needs hospitalization. So there's a very clear pathway for them. But then you get somebody who comes in who perhaps is comatose, who's injured and has a head injury, but now you don't know. Are they, in fact, COVID-positive? And if you're going to put them amongst, let's say, a COVID-free or ideally COVID-free ICU, are you going to be infecting everybody else there and, and creating a lot of mortality and morbidity related to that patient? Do you have the time or the luxury to wait for testing or do you just go ahead and go full PPE and operate them in a separate theater, which takes a whole lot of resources itself? So all these different pathways of management started popping up. You know, we had to find solutions for all of them. And every single person was under stress. Everybody's tense and overworked probably, but put anxiety onto normal work and you immediately get overworked. And yet I think a lot of people pull together. And if you appreciate that the guy you're dealing with, the anesthetist, the, the other surgeon, the ICU staff, everybody is under the same pressures, then, you know, a cohesion developed that actually ended up creating a lot of synergy within the facility. And we are managing with the very acute cases. I think the people that are taking the strain is the sort of semi-acute and less acute, but symptomatic patient, somebody who might have a disc herniation in the back, for example, a lot of pain, but is it validated to bring them into an environment that is not that safe for them? Anyway, so we learned on the spot and we dealt with problems as they arose and seemingly getting through it. When the hard lockdown ended and liquor sales came back in. There's been a lot of discussion uh, by amateurs, by outsiders on this. How big an impact did that have on demand for hospital services? I don't have four more figures to give you because all of these we will be releasing. You know, we're looking at all the numbers, but anecdotally about four times increase in trauma within the first week of alcohol being released. But part of that, particularly actually the curfew, you see, the curfew is in a way, if you can sit and drink at your own house, sure, that doesn't help much for domestic violence, but it certainly helps for perhaps gang-related or gathering violence where things can just get out of control. But we certainly saw a four times increase. Now you've got all these patients coming in. And again, you've got a confused patient. You can't screen them properly. You have to assume that they are positive because of the impact they could potentially have. Remember, if somebody's intubated or coughing all over the place, it can have a devastating exponential transmission. So it burdened us a lot. And, you know, I think I might have said it last time, you let the people smoke, but keep the booze out of it. But the curfew may be even better. If we've been scolded now by the principal and we've been sent to our rooms without our drinks, it's sad that those things had to happen, but the figures don't lie. So I've been taking the stance that everybody affected by COVID has got a very valid point. The businessman, the restauranteur, everybody's got a point of argument. But standing on our side of the fence where you're looking at the actual patients, that single intervention has certainly made a massive difference, the alcohol. You've been through the fire. It looks like it might have plateaued and at least in the near future start declining. But other parts of the country, other provinces, which are perhaps not as well resourced as the Western Cape, are going to be looking for resources for support amongst the medical fraternity. Is that something that you can do? Can you send doctors? Can you send nurses to, say, the Eastern Cape? Yeah, that's very difficult I mean, because you're going to have to have a willing buyer, willing seller, isn't it? You can't really force people, I would imagine, to go into those environments, particularly if they grossly understaff. And, you know, we all see social media accounts of what's going on in different areas of the country, typically the worst of the worst. So difficult to really judge the global picture. Cape Town and the Western Cape seems to plateau, as you said, and that still is one week, maybe 10 days worth of data. So let's not break out the, <laughs> the champagne yet. And it's going to be a table mountain type curve. You know, it's going to take a long time on the plateau before it starts dipping down. And that will demand a continuous, because what we currently have is certainly not light. 
Some of the solutions that we had in the year are on plan, and I'm not exactly sure to what extent we implemented them, was the synergy with the private practice, where the private facilities would be able to take patients in. And we had the CTICC, sort of the intermediary step-down type facilities that are available. And I'm not sure to what extent those facilities are available elsewhere, but I would imagine now looking at the way things are skyrocketing, almost out of control in some of the parts of the country, that they're going to be leaning way heavier on those plans that we perhaps didn't do in the Western Cape. But that will be probably the first resort, to have the private and public total bed complement being optimized prior to bringing people in. And if you're going to bring people in, logistically, the offer you make to somebody, you know, why would somebody do that? There's a lot of goodwill. But they're certainly not sitting twiddling their thumbs down here, you know, so people are going to be reluctant, I think, to go. That's just my honest opinion, but they're in for a rough ride. We had the benefit of the fear factor, I think, after the hard lockdown. You know, everybody had a significant fear factor. We were told to do these things. We were forced. There's a lot of presence of police. Everything was locked down. And then the Western Cape started having their surge. Now the surge in Gauteng, Eastern Cape, KZN, whether the fear factor is still there, I don't know. You know, people have too much time and too much social media access to have too many conspiracy theories and there's 5Gs and crystals and all sorts of things going on. That's the real cause. The reality is the laxity in terms of the very simple things that can stop listening. And that laxity is now paying dividends. It's honestly biting really hard. Honestly, to have 100% capacity in taxis, to say that you have an open window is going to help for that. Maybe everybody wears their masks, maybe they don't. But you can just understand how exponentially transport systems can be affecting these things. And I can't be too critical because part of this is maintaining economy. And I'm literally standing on one side of the fence shouting out, do this and that, looking at my aspect. And I do understand that there's way, way, way more to this and that. But solution would have been, I think, a sort of a phased lockout. I do like the concept of being very strict on people not adhering to PPE wearing their mask, that sort of stuff. If you can police it like you would a primary school, I don't think you can. Uh, you still demand a lot of people's common sense cooperation. And I'm not sure. I think we're going to feel it rather than listen. That's just my sense. This has been episode 61 of Inside COVID-19. I hope you enjoyed it. The full interviews of the highlights that have been featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or the app, which you can download from the Apple or Android stores. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.